It stinks. Yeah, probably so. Well, good evening, everyone. Okay, so y'all make it difficult on me because I'm going to have to look kind of like this to, to, to span it. Obviously, the weather is kind of prohibitive for us this evening. Um, and just to let everybody know, uh, because everybody's asking, yes, I am better, um, or at least feeling that way and, and, and on the mend. I'm, I'm still really, uh, really weak and uh, can only work about a half day, and then I have to go home, just sit still. And I was telling Ron, the biggest thing that drives me crazy is I can't, I can't focus on anything for longer than about 30 minutes, or I, I get tired, and my head starts to hurt, and things like that. So, um, but other than that, I feel fine. I'm breathing okay. I just get tired really easily, uh, which is normal. It was the same way the first time I got it a year and a half ago. So um, anyway, just, uh, just working through that. I think that Luann and Sarah Beth and Ella Grace and Katie Joy all had it as well. Um, I was the only one that was tested, but they all had symptoms um, also. And so uh, we, uh, I got our quarantine on Monday morning, and I'm just trying to get back to normal, which is not easy. So uh, anyway, but I'm glad that you're here tonight. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm sorry I couldn't be here on Sunday, uh, but I watched online, so I was watching like everybody else. And, um, and so our weather has not been cooperating with us uh, this week or in the last few months, and so um, we'll just move on anyway. Uh, I'm excited about doing this again, kind of the want to know thing. I want to go ahead and throw this out there to you before I jump into tonight's thing. Uh, I, I, I kind of worked my way through most all of the questions from uh, the last, uh, last time. There's a few more. Uh, but if you would like and you have something that's on your mind or you'd like for me to talk about, I would love to. And do it just like you did last time. You could shoot me an email, jeremy at eastwoodbc.org. There are ways, because I had a few people do it, there is a way to send me an email where I don't know who sent it. Um, so uh, there are a couple that I got that were anonymous, in, uh, and I didn't know you could do that with the email, but they were sent that way. And so uh, whatever you want to do, you can send those to me, and I'll be happy to try to answer uh, those questions as best I can. Uh, but just like I did last, uh, last semester, I would like to uh, start with prayer, and then we're going to jump into something uh, that I'll introduce to you that'll be kind of like a backfiller. If I don't have enough questions for that week, I'll jump into this, because this will take more than uh, just a few weeks, uh, definitely. So let's pray together, and then we will jump into it. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to be here. And Lord, I pray that you would guide our time and our conversation. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified as we seek to understand you more, understand ourselves more, and worship you in a better way. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So... Um, tonight, I would like to talk about something, uh, and that is this. As Southern Baptists, we are, or at least in our history, have been known as, quote, the people of the book. That's what uh, people have called Southern Baptists for so long because we had such a huge fight that was national news over the inerrancy of Scripture. And so because of that, it came out that we believe as Southern Baptists that the Word of God is completely and totally without error in every way, shape, and form. And so because of that, we have been known as people of the book. In fact, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 states, which is our confession of faith, it states that the Word of God is our sole authority for faith and practice. So soul, S-O-L-E, it is our only authority for both what we believe and how we live it out. So it is our only authority. Not what I say, not what you say, not what anybody says. The Bible is our sole authority. So because of that, it is important that we 
understand and we are guided both individually and as a church by what the Word of God says. If we're going to be people of the book, then what we do and the way we act and, of course, what we believe should be guided by the Word. So it's extremely important that we know the Word. Of course, we're, we're reading the Word together, and, and we talked about that several weeks ago, about what's important, and I do believe that very clearly and very uh, deeply, that it is important we know the Word of God. But it's not enough to simply know what the Bible says. It is actually also very important to know what it means. Um, you can know what it says and, and not really fully understand what it means. And when that happens, uh, you can get into, a trouble, into trouble. We, we have a lot of people in our church who are, I guess, what you would call uh, real estate professionals. Whether they're mortgage brokers or realtors or, or whatever else. And, but most of us know this to be true. If you've watched any HGTV or anything like that about buying houses, they will tell you the same thing over and over again. What are the number, the top three things that are most important in real estate? Location, 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 right? Everybody knows that. Uh, because in the end, where it is is very important for resale value and everything else. Well, in the business of the theory and practice of biblical interpretation, which the word is hermeneutics, it's, that's the big word for it, um, it's the, the theory and practice of interpretation, there are, likewise, three most important things to consider. Context, context, context. When we look at the Word of God, we have to understand the context of what is being said. If you take it, you know this, in having a conversation with someone. You ever walked in in the middle of a conversation and went, what on earth are you talking about? And why? Because you have no context for what was just said. So they said something, and it sounded crazy to you, but you look at the person they're talking to, and the person's just shaking their head like this, because you don't know what they said to begin with, so you have no context for what they're saying. And in the Word of God, it tends to be the case as well. Um, you have heard me say this, and uh, probably, and if you haven't, I'm telling you now, I absolutely love movies. I love movies. I just, I, I do. I like going to movies. I like watching movies. I like watching series of movies. I like old movies, new movies. I just like movies in general. But I would say that in 1987, in my opinion, one of the greatest movies that has ever been made came out. In fact, it may be one of the greatest cinematic accomplishments in all of history. And that is the movie, The Princess Bride. Okay, I'm sorry, it's awesome. And I know people call it a cult classic. That's supposed to mean that it's not actually that good, but people think it is. It's just that good. It's just good in general. It's funny. It's got action. It's got adventure. It's got great characters. It has like nine or ten headliner movie stars in one movie. It's just great. Okay, and, and in that movie, there are multiple stories that go through the movie. Of course, you've got the story about Princess Buttercup. You've got the story of Wesley, who became the Dread Pirate Roberts. You've got all these different storylines. Um, but there's a funny storyline in the midst of all of it, and that's the three criminals. The three criminals in the story, of course, are Vizzini, the Sicilian. He's supposed to be the brains of the outfit. And then you have Fezzik, the giant, which is played by Andre the Giant. Um, and then you have Inigo Montoya. He was a Spaniard and a sword master. And every time in the story, Vizzini gets a chance, he likes to try to show off his intellect. 
He likes to show off his large vocabulary and all these things. And whenever something happens that is not what he expected or not what he prefers, he always says the same word. He says, inconceivable. Right? He says it over and over and over again. Well, at one point in the story, as they, uh, are, they climb up the cliffs of insanity and they get to the top of it, Wesley is climbing up uh, the, the rope to get up there and Vicini cuts the rope. Imagining that he would fall to his death. And yet when he... There, Fezzik and Inigo are looking over the edge. And Vizzini comes up and he looks down and he says... He didn't fall. Inconceivable. And at that point, even though he said it multiple times... Inigo looks at him and he says... You keep using that word. But I do not think it means what you think it means. And in, the, in light of... Scripture, and, and you can imagine being in church, and I can imagine for you, if you've been in church for any given time, but of course, uh, for me, being in the ministry, and then just being in church my whole life, and being around all of it, and listening to preaching, and, and teaching preaching, and grading sermons by students, and different things like that, you can imagine that often, I have to look at someone, or at least in my mind, I don't say it out loud maybe, depending on the context, I will say something to the effect of, you keep using that verse, but I do not think it means what you think it means. And when we look at Scripture, it's the same way. When we, when we think about that, the people of God, obviously, should be the kind of people who know the Word of God, and we quote the Word of God, and we quote Scripture often. However, as you can imagine, through all that time, you have probably heard... And maybe even used verses incorrectly. Now, you don't need... I want to throw this out there before, before we get started. You, you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic um, to understand the Word of God. You don't need to use multi-level discourse analysis. Or uh, you don't need to buy uh, analytical commentaries uh, that study semantic and structural analysis. Generally speaking, you just need to read the verse before it and the verse after it to understand the context. We just need to read everything around it and not just take a verse and pull it out of a text and put it over here and apply it to everything. In hermeneutics, that's called proof texting. It's not always wrong, but it can be very dangerous if you don't understand the context of the word that's being used. Now, the truth is, a good study Bible and a watchful eye... It's really all you need to understand the context of a passage. You need to understand certain things. So what do I mean by context? Well, generally, it would be understanding where the verse occurs. And by this, I mean a few things. One, where does it occur in the statement or the sentence that the author is making? Where, where does it happen in that sentence? Two, where does it occur in the, in the paragraph or the topic? What's the topic that's being spoken of in this passage. Three, what book is it in? And when you want to know what book it's in, that, that means something to the effect of who was the author? Who was the intended audience? Um, when was it written? What geographical location was the author in? Were the, the audience in? What was the purpose of the book? Sometimes in Scripture we're actually told what the purpose of the book is. Four, what is its place in redemptive history? Or to put it another way, is it in the Old Testament or is it in the New Testament? Is it pre-cross and resurrection or post-cross resurrection? And then fifth, what genre of literature is it? Is it 
wisdom literature like Proverbs or the Psalms? Is it history? Um, is it uh, epistle, like a, a letter from Paul or Peter? Or is it a narrative like the book of Acts? Or is it apocalyptic literature like some of Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation? Now, all of those things are important, and you can get all of that from a very decent study Bible. You really can. If you, if you have a study Bible, many times we just go to the first page because we're, we're jumping in there to read or, or whatever else. But if you've got a good study Bible, what you find is before every book, there, there can be as many as 20 or 30 pages. If you get a MacArthur study Bible, there's like 40 pages at the beginning of every single book that tells you author, purpose, audience. It tells you way more than you ever thought you needed to know. But if you'll read that before you read the book, the book makes more sense. Because then you understand who wrote it, why they wrote it, where they were, when they wrote it. You know, it's important to understand certain things like, was Paul traveling when he wrote this letter or was Paul in prison when he wrote this letter? Because if Paul's in prison when he wrote this letter, then the statements he makes about suffering, while always true, they just become a little more poignant when you understand that he's in a prison cell while he's writing about suffering. And so when, when we understand the context, it helps us so much. With this in mind... I want to look at a few of, at least in my experience, the most commonly misinterpreted, misapplied, or misused scriptures. Or uh, what I would call Inigo Montoya verses, because they do not mean what you think they mean. Um, and what happens is, I, I want to be really clear before I jump into them. One, this is not directed at any one person. I don't know, so don't think, oh, he's, he heard me say that I... Frankly, I don't remember what I had for lunch today, so I didn't, I, it's not directed at any one person. Two, it is absolutely and categorically inevitable that I'm going to upset someone by what I'm about to say. And I am okay with that as long as you are. Three, um, I want us to be the kind of church and the kind of people who are certain, yes, that we know the Word of God and that we use the Word of God. But that we know what it means and we don't just know what it says. We have to know what it means so we can apply. And I've always been told from my dad and, and others, never apologize in the pulpit. Never apologize. Now, I know what they mean by that. I've told my students that before. Never apologize in the pulpit. Uh, and, but what I mean by that and what's meant by that is don't say, now before I tell you this truth, I want to apologize. Well, if it's true, there's no reason to apologize. So let me be really clear. I'm not apologizing for the truth. I am apologizing if this upsets you. And the, and the reason I say that is this. This particular discussion, if we were just talking about hermeneutics, that's one thing. But I'm about to pull out some verses that I think are commonly done. And inevitably, someone who hears this, it's either... It could be um, uh, someone's parent or their favorite teacher or their childhood pastor or their favorite author or, or something like that who told them this. Or you read it in a moment of discouragement or, or whatever else. You read this verse and it brought comfort to your heart. And so when you hear this, it's very personal. I mean, many times these things aren't, but th this could be very personal. Um, I, I want to say this too. One... If your childhood preacher or someone you dearly love, a parent or whatever, if they told you this and they applied the verse this way, I, I want to be very clear. They were wrong 
But that doesn't make them wrong all the time, and it doesn't make them bad. It just means they were wrong. Truth is, I have to admit that uh, throughout the years, I have been corrected several times in my study of Scripture when I read something, only to realize that, now, and, and maybe you've never been in this situation, but I can tell you it is categorically embarrassing when you preach something and then have to go back and correct yourself and say, by the way, several months ago, I said such and such, but in my quiet time in my study, I just realized I was wrong. That's kind of hard to do. But the truth is, is when, if we're, we're going to be people of the book and we're going to hold to the truth of God's word, then we have to be willing to allow ourselves to be examined to see if we're interpreting things correctly. Um, and, and truthfully, if, if it, the, the, the wrong interpretation, if it preserved you in a time of difficulty, it gave you strength in a time of weakness, if it gave you comfort in a time of pain, all of those things, I'm, I'm grateful that the Spirit ministered to you in that time. And I, and I believe that very clearly. But I also believe that it's possible, we can see it even in Scripture, um, that God can minister to you and bring you comfort or strength or encouragement or whatever else in spite of our shortcomings and understanding things and knowing what's going on. God can still do it. And so, so the truth is, that is a possibility. So with that said, let's jump in. Um, we're going to start with an easy one because uh, I... I very seriously doubt I'll receive any backlash for this one um, from the room. Y'all are really quiet, by the way. I told like four jokes. Nobody laughed or anything. And, and you're making me nervous. Yeah. No. Uh, Matthew 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. We hear this very commonly, right? Especially in our culture today. We hear something, and it, it's, it's a part of Matthew 7, 1, really, uh, quoted. And people will say, well, you know, the Bible says not to judge. Or Jesus said not to judge. How come you Christians are so judgy? Or your pastor sounds so judgy? You know the Bible says that you're not supposed to judge. However, this is a complete misunderstanding of the passage as well as being a complete misquotation of what Jesus said. Sometimes it can be quoted correctly but misunderstood. This particular instance, it is both misunderstood because, or is misunderstood because it is being misquoted. It's actually not what Jesus said at all. Um, in Matthew chapter 7, in verse 1, sorry, oh, no, I'm there. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let, they, let's take, or let me take the speck out of your, your eye when there is a log in your own eye? And now, now here's the deal. If it ends there, I mean, you can make an argument that Jesus is, is talking about, you know, dealing with your own issues first. But, but technically he does say don't judge or you'll be judged by the same manner in which you judge. But if verse 5 wasn't there... It would be a little, maybe a little confusing, but Jesus very quickly clears up the issue. In fact, in verse 5, he, he says his point. Because, you know, previously he says, um, For uh, judge not that you not be judged. Then he gives why. Because the, the way you judge is the way you will be judged. So that, that's very clear. Then he begins to walk through and say, Now how come you look at the speck? You're so concerned with the speck in your brother's eye and you don't even notice the logs sticking out of your own 
Then in verse 5, he says, you hypocrite. So what is Jesus talking about? He's not talking about judgment. He's talking about hypocrisy. So he's not talking about judgment in and of itself. He's talking about hypocrisy in judgment. Because then he says, first, here's the instruction. First, take the log out of your own eye. Now hear the last part of it. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is not Jesus condemning judging. This is Jesus condemning judging someone for, you, for the very thing that you are guilty of. Okay, He's saying, you're pointing it out because your, you know, your brother missed a prayer meeting one time, but you hadn't been to church in three years. You're pointing out to your brother that he shouldn't lust after that woman in his office that he told you about, but you're addicted to pornography. You told her that it was wrong to talk about you, but you gossip about everybody. That's what Jesus is saying. You're a hypocrite. Don't point out other people's sin when you yourself have that same unresolved issue in your life in a much greater way, possibly. That's, That's the issue. It's hypocrisy. Because then in the verse, he actually tells us to judge, doesn't he? He tells us to judge. And then you will see clearly to take the speck. The point of it is, clear up your own issues, not so you can just be good. He says, clear up your own issues, so then you can help others clear up their issues. The, the, the point is not, don't judge. The point is, judge righteously. That, that's what he's saying. Not judge hypocritically. So he's condemning self-righteousness and judging. In fact, in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and do what? Tell him his fault. That's judgment. That's that's actually what that is. He's saying, go and point out the problem. Then in James 5, 19 through 20, My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James actually says that when someone's wandering, it's your job and it's my job to go and get them and bring them back. Right? So all of those things would actually argue, not that Jesus says, don't judge, but that Jesus says, make sure when you are pointing out sin that you are not guilty of the very thing you're pointing out. Okay, so that's the first one. That's, I think that's pretty straightforward. Most of us may know, we, we hear that often, and, and we may know that to be true. And we know, that this, we know what Jesus means, even intuitively. We know, well, Jesus doesn't mean don't point out sin, because obviously the New Testament points out sin and tells us to point out sin. Um, but what Jesus is saying, when you do it, there's a specific way to do it. And it's not hypocritically, it's not self-righteous, it's not holier than thou. It's humbly caring for the other person's benefit. That's why he says, when a, James says, when a sinner wanders, bring him back. The, the picture there is when a sinner is wandering, you go get them and put your arm around them and bring them back with you. It's not that you stand over on the stoop and scream at them to turn around. That's not what it's saying. So, so there is a, it's not that it's wrong to do, but it is that there is a wrong way to do it. So that's, that's the point of Matthew 7, 1. So that, that one, I think, is, is one that most of us know. This next one is definitely going to get me into trouble. That's okay. Jeremiah 29, 11. 
I said that, and people don't even have to turn in their Bibles, do they? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare or for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And, and I, the reason I said I know I'll get in trouble for this one is I can't tell you how many people have told me this is their life verse. Okay, And I've seen people with it stitched on pillows. I've seen people with tattoos of it. Okay, um, That's a whole other conversation. But it's important that we read the entire prophecy that Jeremiah is giving in Jeremiah 29 in order to understand what he means in 29.11. So if you start in verse 10, because that's kind of where the prophecy starts. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, being Judah, Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I, from which I sent you into exile. Okay, so first we know uh, the context of what's happened. If you've read, if you jump into, just into Jeremiah 29, 11, that sounds like a very beautiful promise. And it is a beautiful promise to an extent. But if you don't jump into Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and you jump in where you're supposed to, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 1, and read all the way to 29, 11, you find a little bit of a different picture. What's happened is the people of God have been in deplorable sin in idolatry. And they have, they have cursed God, they have turned from God, they have done all those things. And so God declares through Jeremiah, the prophet, that he is going to bring judgment from Babylon. And he does so. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he, 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 he sacks Jerusalem, he takes everyone captive, uh, at least the elders and the priests and, and the leaders and all these people. He takes them all captive and he brings them back to Babylon. And so by the time you get to Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem. And he writes a letter to everyone who's been taken exile uh, to Babylon and he sends it to them. And in fact, we know, according to Jeremiah 29 verse 1, who it was sent to. I'll just read what it says here. In Jeremiah 29, 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So it's addressed to everyone, but you notice, and all the people is at the end. The, the message is driven to the leadership first and then to the people. So it applies to all of them, but, uh, but he's, he's giving it directly to them as the addressees. Um, what's important to note is what he says in the prophecy. Not in Jeremiah 29, 11, but in Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed. So he's giving them a promise, but he tells them. I mean, what kind of letter is that to receive? They're, they're in captivity. They have just seen the most horrible thing ever. Their homeland destroyed. They're, they're taken into captivity as slaves, essentially. They're brought into Babylon. And Jeremiah sends them a letter of comfort, right? This is a letter of serious comfort. He says, hey, I know you've been essentially kidnapped. 
I know you have been drug out of your homes, watched them burn, watched the temple be destroyed. I know you have seen all those things. I know you are in a place that is not your home, and you are struggling, and I'm just here to give you encouragement that it will only be 70 years until it's over. What kind of letter is that? Think about it even more so. What kind of letter is it when it's addressed to who? The priests? The surviving elders of the exiles? The prophets? And all the people? Now, he says, I'm going to do this in verse 11. You don't deny that it says that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, plans for peace and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now he's saying that, but the very people, the vast majority of the people who are hearing this, if it's being read, or they are reading this, the vast majority of them will never see this promise fulfilled in their lifetime. Never. The average life expectancy, do you realize, I mean, this is kind of morbid, but the average life expectancy now across the, the world, not just the United States, but across the world, the average life expectancy is only between 70.3 and 73 years of age. Okay? So putting that aside, the truth, the life expectancy was way shorter then, but if we just say the average life expectancy was 90, that still means that the vast majority of the people who were reading this and hearing this were going to die before they were delivered. That, that's just the, that's the obvious truth when we look at that. Say, so, well, why is that important? I mean, it's still a promise. It is absolutely a promise. And, and the people who were hearing it, it was certainly a promise that would be fulfilled in either their children or most likely their grandchildren who were, vast majority of, born in Babylon, not, not in Jerusalem. Because if, if the average life expectancy was just, say, 90 but it was, that's a whole lot. But if we were to say 90, that means anybody under the age, or anybody over the age of 20 would die before this would be fulfilled. Okay, so, so that means that pretty much their grandchildren and, and their great-grandchildren, that's about who it applied to. So, okay, but the promise is still there. Absolutely, it is still there. The issue here is not in misquoting. Like the first one, it's misapplied because it's misquoted. This one is not misquoted. Everybody knows this verse. They don't misquote it. It's misapplied. And it's misapplied because when we apply it, or at least when we hear it applied very often, we hear something to the effect of, hey, now, God promised that while things might look bleak in my, my life right now, things will get better soon. Except that's not at all true for the people who are reading this. When they read this, it did not mean things were going to get better soon. It meant things would get better in 70 years, and they knew they weren't going to live to see that. So then what does the message mean? Uh, because because it's obviously it is a promise, like I said. Well... God does promise that he has a plan to them. Well, when they hear God has a plan, that sounds exciting. You hear God has a plan, that sounds exciting. Just remember what he said in the previous verse. I have a plan that will happen in 70 years. So for them, this plan doesn't really bring comfort for them individually. This is the key. 
but it does bring comfort to them corporately as a people. Because they, re- they just saw the temple destroyed. They just saw everyone taken into captivity. But where is their comfort lie? Not in the fact that they would see Jerusalem again necessarily. They find comfort in the fact that God is not forsaking his people ultimately. But that the, the people as a whole would be restored. That's where the comfort comes in. That's where the hope comes in. Say, okay, so then... So I'm wrong for believing these truths. No, you're not wrong at all. Now, I will say this. You're wrong for using this verse to apply those truths. But you're not wrong in applying those truths. For instance, God knows the plan he has for you. Absolutely. Amen. You know why? Because God knows everything. He's omniscient. So, of course, he knows everything. And because of that, he knows the plans he has for you. In fact, the scripture says what? That man plans, but God directs his steps. God, God has every... Uh, we're, we're told that, uh, that the days of our life are laid out even before as yet there was one. So, so we know that to be true from the character of God. So does God know the plans he has for you? Absolutely he does. And you can take comfort in that. Um, does, is it true that you have a hope and a future? Well, absolutely it's true that you have a hope and a future. You have a hope in the future because in Christ, regardless of what happens in this life, you will spend eternity with God. That's the best future, right? That's why I have an issue with things like, you know, people saying, or someone writing a book, talking about how we're supposed to have our best life now. In the words of John MacArthur, if your best life is now, you're in trouble. Because your best life should be in eternity, not now. So do you have a future and a hope? Well, of course because of Jesus you have a future and a hope and it is regardless of what happens here and then obviously if your future and your hope is in eternity in heaven like first Peter chapter 1 then it is what it's a plan for good and not for evil so all these truths are that they're truths but Jeremiah 29 11 is a little bit different and the reason we run into a problem here is because we try to apply it in the incorrect way. We look at certain situations and we say, well, like I said, things are bad now, but they'll get better soon. Or, you know, this is, we tend to hear this and we want to be less Prophet Jeremiah and more Shirley Temple. All right? Because, I mean, tomorrow, tomorrow, there's always tomorrow. It'll be brighter. What if it's not? You're like, this is morbid. It's just reality. What if it's not? What if tomorrow's not better and the next day's not better? You say, and that's not encouraging. It is life, though. It is life sometimes. Grief and sorrow and pain are hard. And, and there are times where we enter in and there are people who have lived their entire... You listen to Paul's explanation of his entire ministry... To me, and Paul was the greatest missionary. Paul's missionary journeys and Paul's ministry, while there were a lot of high points, when Paul describes it, he doesn't describe the high points. He talks about how he was shipwrecked, left for dead, left out, exposed to the elements, exposed to thieves and murderers and all these different things. And then ultimately, he was victorious in life because he had his head chopped off by a Roman emperor. That doesn't really sound like things are bad now, but they're looking up. It sounds like things are bad now in a, in a realistic day-to-day standing. That's, 
It's not like Paul was sitting there chained to a Roman guard under threat of death or he was floating on a board out in the ocean after a shipwreck or he was stoned and drug outside the city and left for dead and he's sitting there thinking, this is awesome. Paul's not saying that. What he says is, these momentary and light afflictions do not compare to what? To the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for me. Right? So, so the truth is, in reality... We, 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 we understand that. Believing this way causes people to believe that either God doesn't keep his promises or that God doesn't care. I mean, you, you've heard that before, right? Why? Well, because when things get hard and things hurt and people that you love and you pray for, they die or they're sick, we hear that and, and, and if, if we don't, understand the Lord and we don't understand the, the, the scriptures in, in this truest sense then what happens is we're, our hearts are drawn to a place where we can think or say things in, in our minds or maybe out loud but most of the time in our minds we think things like well does, does God not care? Or maybe God just doesn't keep his promises or maybe it's just that he doesn't like me. He doesn't keep his promises to me. And, and some people can hear that and say Man, that's not, I would never think that way. That's silly to think that way. But if you've ever lost someone close to you, you've ever experienced pain like that, your brain can come up with all kinds of things. Your, your, your heart can come up with all kinds of things. I remember when my grandfather, I, wa- I was very close. You, many of you heard my, my dad preach. Um, m- my dad was my grandparents' only son. And so... Uh, because of that, my brother and I are the only two that carry the family name. That was a big deal for my in, in the whole generation. If my dad had not had sons, there would be no more Rogers. But on top of that, my brother and I were both named after my grandfather, or named after my grandfather and my father. And because of that, all four of our sons are named after my grandfather and my father. It's a, it's a very important deal. So very, very close to my grandfather. He was a sheriff's deputy for 37 years for Harris County. Um, in the truest sense, he was the godliest man. The thing I remember about him most is every morning, didn't matter how early I got up when I was at my grandparents' house, he would be sitting in his gray recliner in the corner with the lamp on, where, in his bare feet with his giant Coke bottle glasses, reading his Schofield study Bible every day. I mean, just without fail. Um, and I also remember the man was the living embodiment of John Wayne in every I mean in every way because of what he was he was the he was the chief deputy for Harris County Sheriff's Department so because of that he didn't have to always wear the same type of uniform everybody did so he wore a cowboy cut silver or like a grayish silver suit with the cowboy cuts and a big gray Stetson and he carried a Colt 40 he was John Wayne the man wore ostrich skin or rattlesnake boots every single day of my life um, I would pull them off, and he'd put on his house shoes. And in the morning, he'd pull them right back on. I mean, that's just that's what he did. And yet, the last four years of his life, I watched him slowly fade away from Alzheimer's. And I remember praying for that man. I, I remember being on my knees in my dad's bedroom, crying out to God that he would, I mean, honestly, and if you've been in this situation, you understand what I mean, that he would cause him to have a heart attack or something. 
Because to watch a man that I saw as this living embodiment of everything godly and everything manly, watching him waste away by Alzheimer's was one of the hardest things I ever did in my entire life. And even worse, to watch my father watch this happen, which was terrible. I was with him up until, almost up until the final hour of his life um, without leaving. And then I left and I came back and I was in the room and about... Ten minutes later, he passed away. And to watch this happen, I remember praying to God and crying out, and God, heal him. Fix it. I just want one more minute with him. You know, I, 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 even now, I mean, what I would not give to just have one more hour with him. And yet in the middle of all that, when we don't understand the goodness of God, and, and I mean that for real, when we don't understand the goodness of God truly, then what happens is we believe that the goodness of God means that every single thing that happens in life is going to be good. And if it's not, that was unexpected. The problem is, is that's neither theologically correct or biblically tenable. You, you, can't, you, you look at the Bible, you can't hold that to be true. I mean, Jesus himself. Jesus himself told us in John 16, 33... I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. What is peace? Well, calm or the absence of war in the midst of conflict. So, so that you might have peace because in the world you will have tribulation. That, Jesus actually promised, that is stated as a promise. You will have tribulation. Well, that's not the fun part of the verse. The fun part of the verse is what he says after that. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul promised Timothy, Indeed, I tell you, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So when we hear that, we, we can't square it with the fact that nothing's ever supposed to happen. You know why this happens? This misapplication occurs... Because of the prosperity gospel and the insidious nature of it in the church and in common teaching and popular books and things of that nature. Where we're told that the purpose of your life and the purpose of God's will in your life is that you be healthy and you be wealthy. That's, that's the whole point of your life. And if you carry that through to its logical conclusion, then what does it mean? If you're poor or you're sick, then you're in sin somehow. Because you are out of the will of God. Say, well, I don't know if I've ever heard that. Then you've obviously never watched certain television channels. Or read certain authors or certain books. Say, is that really what people believe? Yes, that's exactly what they believe. But we don't need to look any further than reality, like sickness, like watching a godly person waste away. Or we don't need to look any further than Jesus himself. If suffering and pain and injury and illness are all because of sin in the life of the person that is experiencing that, then how do we square Jesus on the cross or the fact that the Bible describes him as a man of sorrows acquainted with much grief? That he was broken and afflicted and wounded. All of those things. Or how do we square the fact if it's God's intention that you be healthy or that you be wealthy, that Jesus said, that the birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. 
Jesus himself was poor. So if that's the case, then the only problem with that theological belief is that it's not biblical at all. It's not even close to biblical, and it doesn't square with reality. And when we try to take that and apply it to our lives, it makes us misunderstand God. Because obviously, it it either makes us think, well, man, this illness must be here, or this difficulty or hardship must be here because of sin in, in this person's life. No. It is there because of sin, because sin is in the world, and that brings pain and brokenness and death. But it is not necessarily there because of that person's sin. Jesus encountered a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples said, Lord, um, is this man blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin? And Jesus says what? Neither. But instead that the glory of God may be fulfilled. So, so the point is it doesn't square. And what it does is when we try to apply that, it throws everything out of balance in our understanding of God. And, and, and we, we fall into despair Because, well, man, I must be doing something wrong. What if you're not doing anything wrong? Well, maybe they did something. What if they didn't do anything wrong? Well, maybe God doesn't care, except the Scripture says in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties or your cares on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. That's what the Bible says. You throw your cares and your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So it can't be that God doesn't care. He does. Well, maybe God just doesn't keep his promises. Maybe that's the case. Well, one, what I'm arguing is that this is not that kind of promise in Jeremiah 29, 11, But also, Psalm 145, verse 13 completely contradicts that. Because in Psalm 145, it says, Your kingdom, Lord is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. This is what the Bible tells us about God. So then, is it true that God doesn't care? No. Is it true that God doesn't know? No. Is it true that a person who is dealing with sickness or pain or even death, is it true that it's because of sin in their life? No. It's because... Pain and, and all of these things are a reality. And they're, they hurt. And they're not fun. And they're not enjoyable. And nobody ever said they were. But these momentary and light afflictions, I count as nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory, according to the Apostle Paul. So when we think about Jeremiah 29, 11, it's not misquoted. It's just misapplied. It's misapplied. It, it, it does have to do with God uh, promising a future. And it, it does have to do with the hope and all those things. But it does not have to do with what we as, as humans desire. And that is, in the end, when things get hard, what do we want to do? When, when pain starts, what's the number one thing we do? If you get a headache, do you say... I'm just going to grit my teeth and work my way through it. No, you go take Tylenol or you take ibuprofen or something. Why? Because I have pain and I want the pain to stop. So our natural inclination is find whatever I need to get away from the pain. Well, that's called preservation. That's, that's, that's natural for us. If, if you stick your hand in a fire, don't hold it there because you think you're stronger than the flame. Pull it away. It, it's going to hurt you. And it's just going to get worse and worse and worse the longer you hold it there. We, we want to escape pain. And because of that, 
we can read things and we want it to give us a relief valve. So when things are hard and I'm struggling in life and I have a, 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 a chronic back pain or, or something to that effect, my, my, mother, my mother has chronic migraines where she's on disability because of them. She's had those my entire life, my entire life. And I've seen her struggle, I've seen her have pain, and I've seen her pray for that to be delivered, all those things, and she still has them. It also sounds a little bit like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said that he had a thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him, and he says he cried out for it three times to be delivered. There's nothing wrong with that. He cried out to be delivered. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in your weakness. You notice he didn't say okay or give me a minute and we'll take care of it. He just says my grace is sufficient. You know what Paul heard in that? It's going to stay. But I'll be with you. And, and that's the promise of scripture. It's not that when I hurt or when things are hard, God's going to remove them. We have to go through them. It, it, the scripture is clear. The promise of Scripture is not that God will deliver you from every single hardship and difficulty in your life. The promise of Scripture is that in the midst of those, he will never leave you or forsake you. But he will be with you. The beauty of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is not that God kept them from the flame. It's that God was with them in the midst of the flame. So, that's Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, that's the one that y'all were really quiet on. Here's one. Uh, this one doesn't take quite as long, actually. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. You're familiar with this one, too, because it's made popular by Billy Graham. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And, it, and, it's, and the reason I say that is it's made popular by Billy Graham. Other people use it, obviously, but it's made popular by Billy Graham as an illustration of Jesus is standing, and maybe you've even seen the picture, right? Jesus is standing at the door of your heart, and he is knocking, saying, if you'll just let him in, he will enter your heart. Except that's not what it says at all. In fact, if you, again, read the verses before and after, this is a message to the church at Laodicea. This is, a, this is one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. This is a message. And it says, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? Then he begins his message, right? And he's walking through his message, and then in verse 20 he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not what the Spirit says to the lost people. This is a message to the church. These are believers. That, that's what this is. And, and that's just simple context to show us this is a message to the church, not to lost people. You say, can it not be applied? That? Well, when you misquote it, you misapply it. And that's not what this is about. You say, well, I mean, it's such a powerful message. Um, actually, in its context, I think it's an even more powerful context. Uh, Concept. This is a message to useless churches who have removed Jesus from their operations. 
they worship, they, they, they sing, uh, they, they, they open the Bible, they, they maybe talk from it. Uh, they, they don't pray, they don't consult the Lord in their guidance, they don't, they, don't, they don't fast, they don't seek the Lord, they don't do any of those things. What are they doing? They're operating the whole thing. This is the picture. Not that Jesus is standing outside the door of a lost person's heart knocking. The picture is a church full of believers with the door shut and Jesus is standing out there on that porch knocking saying, let me back in. That's what the picture is. It's, not, it's, it's a useless church that's removed Jesus from its activities. So how is that possible? Well, there's a picture of that in the Old Testament. Do you know, in the Old Testament, when the people had sinned and they had just sinned to the point where God said, huh, no more. The Bible says that God declared Ichabod or Ichavod in Hebrew. It means the glory has left. The glory is gone. And it says that the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, left the temple. Did you know that the people continued to offer sacrifice and continued to worship and all those things for hundreds of years before God entered the temple again in the person of Jesus Christ? So what does that mean? It means the people of God can worship God without God there. And that's what, that's what this issue is. This is a church that has removed Jesus from what they do. And he's standing outside the church saying, Hey, family, let me back in. You've removed the bridegroom from his bride. That's the picture in this story. It also does bring out a side note, which I think is important. He says in the same passage, another phrase that we're, we, you're probably all too familiar with, when he says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea, I write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And we hear that, we're like, that's right. I like lukewarm Christians. Okay, but then to an extent, that's correct. But have you ever heard it explained where it says, God would rather, and of course this is Jesus, because this is a message from Jesus directly to the seven churches, that Jesus would rather you be on fire for God or completely cold and dead. He would prefer that over being lukewarm. Anybody else think it's crazy to say that Jesus would be okay if you were completely cold and dead and, and didn't care about God at all? He'd prefer that? It, because that's not what it means. You have to understand the context of who he's writing to. He's writing to the church in... La that is a big moth. He's writing to the church in Laodicea. Sorry, the ADD kicked in for a second. Um, he's writing to the church at Laodicea. Well, why is that important? Well... It is not because God wishes you were either on fire for him or completely cold toward the things of God. God would never wish that you would be completely cold toward the things of God. That, that just doesn't make sense. What does make sense is that there were three major cities in the Lycus Plain. Hierapolis, Colossae, and Laodicea. There's three major cities. I mean, everybody knew who they were. Major cities. Hierapolis had extremely hot springs that were, that were very high in mineral content. So that's really good for like 
you know, like Epsom salt baths, that kind of thing. Very good for medicinal purposes. People traveled from all over the known world to go to Hierapolis to experience the hot springs for their medicinal purposes. People also traveled all over the, uh, from all over the world to go to Colossae because Colossae, among other things, was well known for the fact that they had ice cold, clean, almost mineral-free water. So you got Colossae that is extremely cold and useful for drinking and refreshment. You have Hierapolis that is extremely hot and mineral-laden, very useful and beneficial for medicinal purposes and refreshment. But then you had Laodicea. Laodicea didn't have any natural springs, so they had to have their water brought in through aqueduct. It's one of the largest aqueducts in the world. Roman aqueduct. And as it's brought in from those areas around where it was brought from the, the warm springs or whatever else, or from the cold springs in Colossae, by the time it traveled all the way down that aqueduct and it got to Laodicea, what was it? It was either just lukewarm or it was lukewarm and mineral, heavy laden with minerals, which meant it was what? If you tried to drink it, it was disgusting. And you would do what? Spew it out of your mouth. So what Jesus is saying is an he's giving an illustration that the Laodicean people, who this is written to, would completely understand. I wish you were hot and useful, or you were cold and useful, but because you are neither, you're disgusting. Why? Because you locked him out of the church. That's the point of the whole path. You locked him out of the church. And because of that, you're not useful. So this isn't a message to lost people. It's a message to useless churches. Um, so he's saying, I wish you were either cool and refreshing or warm and healing, but because you're simply disgusting, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And then, lastly, I got, I got a couple of minutes, and I'll cover this one quickly. This, I have ten of these, so this is number four, so we'll stop after four. But um, this may be the most commonly used or misused verses I, ever. And the reason is because I think we use it and it's just passed on from generation to generation to generation among church people specifically. Matthew chapter 18 verse 20. Matthew chapter 18 verse 20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And I have literally heard this verse my entire life. Entire, and, and I will tell you too, I have used it this way many times in my history. It is most comforting when you show up on a Sunday night in a small Baptist church. This is where I heard it growing up. You show up on a Sunday night in a small Baptist church. It's raining outside. So because of that, it was like my dad, me, my brother and sister. My mom's back in the, the nursery or whatever. My dad, me, my brother and sister two deacons, and a couple of faithful widow ladies, and that's it. And our worship guy would get up, or my, or my dad or someone would get up, and they would say, I know it's cold outside, but it's warm in here. right? And I know the, the sun's not out, but we're glad the sun has risen. right? So I'm just going with the, the thing. And we can stand on the promise of God's word that where two or three are gathered together, he is in the midst. That sounds really good, except it's not what that passage is about at all. 
Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So that's one of you. If he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's a whole bunch of people. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Then verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? The entire context of this passage is about somebody sinning in the midst of the people of God or sinning directly against someone in the church or in, in the people of God. Why? Because he said it before and Peter, Peter, he gets it wrong all the time. He gets it wrong in this passage. But he asks the right question. In the sense that he understood what Jesus was talking about. He didn't understand the principle, but he understood what he's talking about. That's why Peter doesn't walk up and say, So Lord, you're always going to be with us when we worship? No, he said, Lord, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Why? Because that's what Jesus was talking about. Is someone sinning against somebody. That's the context of the passage. So why is that important? Well, this is a passage about confronting sin. And what we would commonly call the process of church discipline. You know, somebody sins against Ron sins against me. I go to Ron. Okay, Ron, what you said really hurt my feelings. Oh, I'm sorry, brother. That's good. No, it's no problem. And we're good. I go to him and I say, hey, what you said was really hurtful. And he says, I don't care what you think. Okay, then I come over. I grab Mike. I grab some others. And I say, hey, come back to him. I say, Ron, what you said really hurt my feelings. And, you know, and, and Mike, and they're here to tell you, to agree with me that this is wrong. I don't care. But what, well, where two of you agree on earth about anything. What is Jesus saying? In a sense, he's almost saying spiritually there's strength in numbers. Is what he's saying. When, when, when you go with one, that's awesome because you've won a brother. But if you have to go back, you've got to take two or three. And you've got to take more and you've got to take more. Say, well then, what does he mean when he says, I am there in your midst or I'm there with you? Well, this is actually a wonderful promise. And this is a promise. This is a wonderful promise. Why? Have you ever had to confront someone in their sin? I mean, like an adult, like a peer. Have you ever had to do that? Well, I tell you, I've had to confront people in sin. And obviously, I, I mean, I just turned 39. But I've been in pastoral ministry for quite some time. And I can tell you that a number of people that I have had to point out or call them out on open and public sin were older than me. Much older than me. That's very scary. I don't know the other word to put it. That's scary. You ever have to go to someone and go, what you're doing is wrong. That's scary. That takes um, a, a lot. It, it, that, it's stressful. I'm about to tell you, when I have to do something like that, I can't eat for days. And if I do, I get nauseous. I, it's stressful. I don't sleep. Why? It's hard. Why? Because you're also thinking, you're also, or should be thinking, about the other passage in Matthew, right? Now make sure you get rid of that log. You've know, you got to make sure of that. But if you've got all that clear, 
You go and you talk to them, that's scary. It's hard. It's stressful. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. And what Jesus is saying is if you follow this process, I'm promising you that while it's hard, I'll be with you. I'm there with you. You're following my direction. I condone it. I empower it. And my presence will be there. It'll be felt and it should be expected. I tell you, when you're confronting sin like that, knowing that Jesus condones and he is right there with you, sometimes is the only comfort that you can gather. Because other than that, you say, well, well you know, it's, isn't it wonderful though when people turn back? Yeah, but you know, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's hard and it's just hard. And it doesn't end well. And people don't want to talk to you anymore. And people leave the church. And people stop doing stuff. Or even worse, they start sending emails to church members anonymously. Or letters. Or all kinds of things. The other problem with it is that the other translation, if we use the other translation, we have a little bit of a problem. Um, one with Matthew 28, 20. You know, we know 28, 19, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, even as I have commanded you. And then what does he say in verse 20? And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So what does that mean? That means when you're by yourself in the car, and you got the radio cranked up, even if you can't sing, and you're singing at the top of your lungs, it doesn't matter, because the only person that can hear you is Jesus. Why? Because he's there. Because he said he would be. Second, what about Colossians 1.27? To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery that's held throughout the ages? Christ in you. The hope of glory. The hope of your glory and of my glory is what? That Jesus is in me. He's not just with me. He's in me. That means anywhere I go, even if I'm on a desert island all by myself, I'm never by myself. And because of that, it doesn't matter if there's two or three. There can be one. And Jesus is with me. Right? And so, again, the beautiful promise is not... Listen, when two or three people are gathered together, of course, in his name, of course Jesus is there. He's here right now. But y'all don't know this, so if you ever see it, don't freak out. There are times when I come in this room by myself and pray or you, you may not want to know this. I practice portions of my sermon that I feel uncomfortable with. Like they, I don't think they sound right, so I get in here and act like you're here. But you're not, and I'm by myself, and the staff thinks I'm crazy because they, they just hear me in here talking really loudly. But I'm actually not preaching to anyone on Sunday mornings, I'm not preaching to anyone. I'm preaching to one who is always there. Everyone else in the room is just a bystander. Just listening to God's word being spoken for God's glory. We just listen. And we catch it on the side. That's, that's the activity. And so because of that, the reason I say that is holding to the promise that no matter where you are, even if you're by yourself, that God is there in power through the person and work of Jesus Christ and the person of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that means that wherever you are, the entire Trinity is with you? Why? Because it pleased God that 
in Jesus all the fullness of the Godhead would dwell in bodily form. God is always with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of that, you are never alone. You see what I mean? It's not that that's wrong. That where two or three are gathered together, God is there. But in its context, it's an even more beautiful promise. It's that when you have to do something hard, like point out sin, or call someone to righteousness or holiness, you might be scared, you might be nervous, you might even be nauseous, but you're not alone. Because Jesus is there. And he is overseeing the situation, he is empowering the situation. And you can know while that person may walk away and say, I hate you, I want you to die, or whatever else. Jesus is standing there smiling because you did exactly what he told you to do, and he is pleased. And that was the promise. And that's the promise in Matthew 18. And so the reason I say that is, while the truths we come out with are true in certain areas, they're true maybe from certain other portions of Scripture. But you'll never get any better than interpreting and understanding God's Word exactly the way He wrote it. Exactly the way He intended for us to understand it. Because when you read it in context and understand it exactly the way He intended for it to be understood, it's even that much more rich. Because it is inerrant. But it is also infallible. Which means, rightly interpreted, the Word of God will never lead you into error. Rightly interpreted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for this day. And Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that we can stand on the truth and on the strong foundation of your word. And God, I pray that we would be like the Bereans. Lord, we would seek, we would dig, we would seek to prove what is true. And then, as your word tells us, hold fast to what is true and cast off everything that's not. Lord, I pray that we would be people of the book, people of truth, that we might bring you glory and live in a manner that pleases you. And it's in Christ's name I pray.